the flip side is that the family was so traditional that there was no question of me as a daughter having anything to do with the business. Ironically, today, last week, my nephew, my brother's son, who has sort of taken on this third innings of my father, his, his late grandfather, has said to me, you know what, I'm putting together a board and I really need a sensible woman to be on my board and please can it be you? And I thought, oh my gosh, all these years, I would ask my father, I want to be part of the business. I want to be part of the board of directors. I want to help contribute. And it was like, no, 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 no. And now it's just coming to me by default. Welcome to the True Fiction Project, a podcast series that explores the origins of fiction. Every week, we begin with an interview, nonfiction, followed by a creative piece, fiction, inspired by something from the interview. The idea is to demonstrate, of course, that fiction is born out of our life experiences. Now, here's your host, storyteller, author, public speaker, health and wellness expert, Renita Hora. Welcome to the True Fiction Project. I'm your host, Renita Hora. Fiction, that's something I've been exploring for some time now. The question always is, where does fiction actually come from? And for that, I thought about introducing a podcast where I would interview a series of guests with amazing stories that have true life impact. The idea being that once I interviewed them, I would pull from that interview a piece of fiction where one of them, ideally the interviewee himself or herself, would be the main character. How does that translate into a podcast? Well, the idea is to have a nonfiction piece, which is the interview itself. And then, as I mentioned, pull something from there, a caricature, a short story, a piece of music. It could be anything which is actually fiction, because fiction, as we know, just comes from our everyday lives. This is our introductory episode. So we thought to kick it off by me being the main character and our producer, Tracy DeForge, interviewing me to see what we could come up with. So with that said, I'd love to hand it over to Tracy. Hi, Tracy. Hello, Renita. This is so fun for me personally to be a part of your very first episode of the True Fiction Project because behind the scenes, we've been having so many amazing conversations about bringing this show to life. So I am honored and it is my pleasure to kick this series off with you being the person that's making impact into the world. And I can't wait to hear how you turn this into a fun character narrative. So let's get started. You were born and raised in Bombay, and you have an amazing career trajectory, a huge background in both fiction and broadcast and personal finance. So help us build that bridge between being born and raised in Bombay and being this phenomenal, world-class entrepreneur that you are. Oh, goodness, Tracy. I mean, truth be told, when people ask me how I got here or in whatever way they want to phrase that question, I say to them, as I think I've said to you, I have a long and sordid history. And I have to say, my spouse hates it when I answer like that. He's like, don't use the word sordid. But I'm like, but it is. <laughs> You know, as you've touched on, there have been a few different things that I have done, a few different reincarnations of myself. Yes, I was born in Bombay, which 
most people know as Mumbai. It is Mumbai, but we grew up calling it Bombay. And for those of us who grew up in that age, we still call it Bombay. And so I am from there. I was and still am very much so, although today I speak with you from San Francisco. And over the last 35 plus years, uh, have been through a few different incarnations in my career. I have been an Ayurvedic doc, an Ayurvedic clinician, Ayurveda being the natural medicine of India. For many, many years, I had a practice and a business in this area. That was before I actually wrote four books on the topic, starting with one, of course, eventually led to four books on the topic. And I said, hey, you know, I really kind of like writing. And nonfiction is great, but, you know, I'd like to explore other things too. Anyway, as life turns out, we had a global financial crisis, if you remember, way back, Lehman Brothers fell apart. And (laughs) yep, our family kind of fell apart with it. Okay, that's a little, again, sorted. That's not entirely, we didn't fall apart. (laughs) My (laughs) husband was working for Lehman Brothers at the time. Oh, wow. Yes, and that actually took us to Hong Kong, and where I had little choice but to sort of reinvent life. I had already started writing as a freelance journalist here, print journalist. Print in those days even meant digital. It's just that we were still referring to it as print, and it was very much DIY. Once I got to Hong Kong, things transitioned. I very quickly became a broadcast journalist with public radio initially and eventually with Bloomberg. During my days at public radio, RTHK Radio 3 Hong Kong, the English language public radio station there, I did a series of storytelling projects, lunchtime projects, my favorite being Asian Threads, which actually went on to win awards pretty quickly. But then I also had a finance show, which Brian and I decided to call Money for Nothing after the Dire Straits song, one of my all-time favorites. (laughs) Great song. Great song. (gasps) Yes. Great song, great band. And that show was one that I created, I produced, I eventually hosted, and I left to then join Bloomberg. Bloomberg actually recruited me because of my presence on that show. So... In that time frame, I also wrote a book on personal finance for middle-class Indian women, very specific. And those are my five nonfiction books, four about Ayurveda, one about personal finance. My true love, not that I, those are not my true love. I love those as well. But my true, true love is fiction because that's what gets my imagination going. And in my time in Hong Kong, I wrote two young adult uh, books. One was called Operation Mom, How I Got My Mother a Life and a Man. Another was called, it was started out, it was published as a middle grade novel called When Arya Fell Through the Fault. And this was a fantasy fiction story about a young boy battling demons. I have since then rewritten that book, it is now called Shadow Realm. I am heavily searching for a U.S. publisher, and most exciting news, I am releasing a narrative fiction podcast based on this story starting very soon. So my life has really been transitioning my focus on my fiction projects. I've got another fiction book, a historical fiction book based upon a massacre. It's a love story, I should say, interfaith love story based on a massacre that took place about 100 years ago in Punjab. And that's being released hopefully sometime next year. But 
as I have been thinking about where I am in life, and I just turned 51, so I've been sort of in this transition mode for the last couple of years, I've been thinking, you know what? Life ain't getting any longer. And if I don't focus full time on my passion and my love, fiction, then it's just going to sit on the back burner. And one day I'll say, I didn't do it. So I decided, well, here I am, and that's what I'm going to do. So I have been exploring the idea of creating this podcast for a long time. But because life has been sorted, as we said, and I've done a few different things, I honestly found it hard to focus. And it took a while to come up with this idea that really marries the two things I love, fiction and how I find it in everyday nonfiction. And that is such a brilliant gift that you possess in order to do that. And what is so interesting to me is before the podcast concept was even created, you were really already doing that in principle with your historic fiction novel that's based on historic events, but then you took that and created it into a fictional narrative, which is what the True Fiction Project is really all about, because you are going to be interviewing amazing people who have achieved and an impacted the world in really beautiful ways, and then you're going to create their personal fiction narrative and release them in a combination that I've just never even heard of that being done before. And I think that is such an exciting concept. Can you tell us about some of the guests, the types of stories that you envision and the types of guests that you'll be interviewing in the nonfiction realm? And let's get really excited about some of these stories that we're about to hear. Yes, absolutely, Tracy. Well, I don't have my entire guest line up ready to go just yet, but I've definitely got some ideas and I definitely have my first few guests booked already. One of them, my very first guest, who I hope to interview very soon, is Mara Arcilla, and she is a, an amazing yoga teacher and dancer. She lives in Hong Kong. She is based oh, in wow. Hong Kong. She's from the Philippines, and she had the opportunity to come to Hong Kong because Disney opened up a window and gave her a chance to be on the parade, their Disney parade, and play the role of Tinkerbell. That's what's so amazing about this particular podcast is that you're really going to get the robustness of these guests and their real life stories. And then you're going to be able to translate those with your own creative spirit and infusing your own fiction, writing, brilliant, uh, beautiful skill set into creating these stories that, I, I mean, just the fact that you get to interview a real life Tinkerbell and then write a story about her, I'm already on pens and needles wanting to hear that episode. Oh, gosh, Tracy, me too. Me too. Because, you know, there's so much that we can presuppose before we actually do the interview. But the real story really comes out in the conversation. We all know that. And I'd love to give you an inkling of who my second guest might be. Now, whether these are first and second or just, you know, in the first series, time will tell. But very recently, I became obsessed with a piece of music coming out of a band in Mumbai, Bombay, where I'm from. And when I went and researched, you know, the, the music was really captivating. I just couldn't get it out of my head. So I went online and I researched the singer, the musician. And 
the musician's name turns out to be Neeraj Arya. Now, I don't know if this cannot be a message from the divine. Neeraj is my husband's first name. Arya is my son's first name. How could I not be attracted wow. to somebody who's called Neeraj Arya? No kidding. And I'm not kidding. And he's from Bombay. And he has formed a band along with uh, four or five other people called The Kabir Cafe. Now, Kabir is this 14th and 15th century Sufi mystic who would roam the streets of India and in street Hindi, Hindi is our local language, but in street Hindi, so very basic, he would recite couplets. He wrote and recited these couplets. Kabir Ke Dohe is how it translates in Hindi. And we grew up learning about this in school. I grew up learning about this in school, so this is nothing new. But what this band has done is that they have taken Kabir's verses and they have put them to music in what um, they call a modern folk style. And the music is completely captivating. They don't consider that it is original music because it's actually the verses of Kabir, the lyrics of this 14th, 15th century poet that they are actually singing. But their message is that of the mystic. And I just have been completely enraptured by this idea and their music itself. And I reached out to them and said, I'm starting this new podcast. Would you be my guest? And they said, yes. And we will be ready to go later on this week. Oh, that's so exciting. And, you know, you mentioned your husband and your son. And I know that family is a huge priority for you on every level. And I also happen to know that your father has been a big influence in your life. Would you like to share a little bit about how his inspiration motivated you to become as successful as you are today? Thank you, Tracy. It's actually a very interesting time in my life that you even asked that question because it's been, to be honest, you know, a rough few months for me. I lost my father this year, not too long ago, on the 4th of July. It was very, very ironic. The day before he passed away was the day that I decided to actually quit my full-time job and focus on my creative projects. Oh, and wow. That was a Friday. Fourth of July was on Sunday. And on Saturday, I got news of his passing. It was already the 4th of July in Mumbai, where he was, in Bombay. And then I got on a plane and, you know, flew there immediately. But the whole time I kept thinking, what I was thinking yesterday was, who's the first person I've got to talk to about this is my father. I've got to tell him because, oh, I don't know what he's going to say, you know, if I sort of quit my job and I'm just going in for my creative pursuits. I mean, he might say, just go for it. My father was of perhaps the most dynamic person I have known in my life. An entrepreneur down to the true definition of the word completely scrappy and a person who dedicated his every day, every moment to the cause of building a business. For him, we used to make fun of him. We used to say, Papa, you don't have any hobbies. You don't have any pastimes. You don't have any other interests. And he'd say, yeah, you're right. This is my hobby. <laughs> this is my pastime. This is my interest. What's your problem? <laughs> I think your father might be my spirit animal. <laughs> <laughs> something like that, something like that. And it's interesting in he had sort of what I would say, using a cricket term, three innings of his business career. He formed a business as a very young man, 
for his family, the family that he was born into, his father, his brothers, and to create that support system for the family. Unfortunately, several years later, it turned out that didn't work out. And he was then forced out of the business and had to create business afresh once again, anew. And that was his second innings. And he created this amazing brand he of razor blades. In India, double-edged razors that sort of in those days would compete with Gillette and Wilkinson Sword and that kind of thing. He created, you know, the topmost brands in India for his father's family initially. The brand, the household name was Topaz. And then after that, for his own nuclear family, his wife, his sons, his daughter, that brand was called Supermax. Eventually, that was bought out years and years later by a private equity company. My father, unfortunately, was forced out of the business again. Sort of the family thing did not necessarily go so well for him. This time it was by his own progeny. So it was deeply devastating. And in his third innings, he started a new business again, this time not focused on razor blades, but on steel and cutting tools. That was actually his specialty as a mechanical engineer. He was a mechanical engineering student out of Loughborough College in England. And in these later years of his life, in the latter part of his life, what he wanted above anything was to really build a business and create this legacy for his future generations. But time was against him. He knew it. We knew it. It was discussed, but he would turn a blind eye to that. And till his very last day, he was active trying to build this business, which is now run by his youngest son. So three innings to his life. And we come from a very traditional family. So there really is not any place for a woman. So this has been something that I have tussled with all of my life, because being born the girl, being born the woman in this family had its ups and downs, and there was never place for me in the family business. But my role always, I have thought over the years, was to document the stories. And it has been a fantastic, fascinating story journey. So even in the years even in the days since he passed, my full focus has gone into outlining actually his story and these three innings and what it will become, whether it's a book or a TV show, that part, I don't know just yet, but I'm working on it. And it's very much the idea of that story building that is giving me this kind of energy today. And as we speak right now, actually to put together this particular creative project. Well, you know, the irony is not lost on me that you spoke about your Ayurvedic career and then you have the career in finance in its own way through broadcasting and publishing. And then now you're in a third inning, if you will, in terms of storyteller, podcaster, and content production around narrative storytelling. So you're mirroring his pattern in a way, ideally with a lot less devastation but still, nonetheless, a pattern in itself. Can you share as just through the lens of maybe a, the little girl in you and maybe the teenager in you and now the adult woman in you, what was the lens that you were looking through this whole time as you were observing your brothers and your father being able to build these businesses? And just what were your takeaways in those different chapters? Oh my gosh, Tracy, that is such a loaded question. I could go on forever. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can extend it in your narrative fiction part of the story. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. 
As a young child, as a little girl, the dinner table conversation was always about business. It was always about business. And so somehow it got ingrained in me that this is kind of the way we think and that I was supposed to think, and this is what we do, and this is what we should do. Of course, as a young girl, I wasn't thinking we are a business family or I'm a daughter of a business family. It wasn't that. But, you know, the topic of how many sales do you make or like, how do you market this? Or, you know, what is your projection plan or what is your material edition? Some of this is terminology, you know, specific to my father, which I later realized in life that, you know, other people didn't know what exactly this meant. And my father would have a black file. And if you talk to him, including one of us, any one of his staff, you had to come and talk to him with a file, which had sort of what I call the original Excel spreadsheets done by hand and created by rulers and pens and pencils and rulers, you know, creating the columns and <laughs> rows and things oh, like that, filled out by hand. With a to-do list, write it, you know, right up front. That would be the first page of the file. And as you accomplish a task, it would be crossed off that list, usually in really awful, cursive, squiggly crossing. That was my father's signature way rather than a clean cancel. (laughs) (laughs) And this just became ingrained in all of us. And when I say all of us, we, his family, his colleagues, his staff members, his employees, I was connecting with one of his ex-employees recently, and we talked about this very thing. And my father, his MO was like, if you need to learn a business, you need to learn all aspects of the business. And there's no classroom or MBA or training school or anything like that that can teach you. So you need to go and learn it practically. So if we are exporting goods and you need to learn what a bill of lading is, go to the docks, take the paperwork, fill it out, understand what is required of a bill of lading, how to fill it out, who to submit it to, who to get it stamped by at the Reserve Bank of India before it goes on. That's, that was a training program. And my father believed that, you know, if you're in exports and marketing, you still have to learn the processes on the factory floor because how are you going to talk to a foreign customer about the product if you don't know how it's made, right? So it was yes. really holistic, the way he thought about stuff and the way he taught all of us just by osmosis. As a teenager, it really would bug me when at, I would go out to dinner parties and there would be other young ladies and they would say things like, well, business is really boring. And maybe they were right. <laughs> but in my head, I or would Or maybe they weren't. Kind of, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I, I had already been so ingrained with all of this stuff. My mind had, I would be thinking, well, kind of, what's your problem? Why, why is business boring? You're not supposed to think like that. Later on, I thought it's not about what you are or not supposed to think. It's just about what you have experienced. One of my dear friends is the marketing lead today for Sequoia Ventures in India. And she grew up in a very similar household to mine where the dinner table topic was the business. And she also comes from a family business. So I guess it's just what you're exposed to. And this is why as an adult later on in life, when I really wanted more than anything to be a part of it, I just couldn't because the flip side is that the family was so traditional that there was no question of me as a daughter having anything to do with the business. Ironically, today, last week, my nephew, my brother's son, 
who has sort of taken on this third innings of my father, his, his late grandfather, has said to me, you know what, I'm putting together a board and I really need a sensible woman to be on my board and please can it be you? And I thought, oh my gosh, all these years, I would ask my father, I want to be part of the business. I want to be part of the board of directors. I want to help contribute. And it was like, no, 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 no. And now it's just coming to me by default through my nephew. Same business oh my gosh, that my father wow. created. That is so beautiful. Uh, well, I can't wait to hear what type of narrative that you extract from this episode and create for yourself. And I don't want to disrupt the creative process by any means, but I think it would be so fun if the story was that you were best friends with the other girlfriend that you're friends with now and that you guys grew up being friends talking about what was being talked about at your dinner table, because what a fun thing that would be to hear the perspective of these young women who had such a thirst and a quest for being business-minded and being involved in their family's businesses, but having to sit on the sidelines by default of tradition. So I'm not saying that that's what you should write because you're the muse. I'm just saying, well, maybe I could be the muse and you could be the writer. But either way, this is going to be such a phenomenal podcast. <laughs> I'm very excited by it, Tracy, because I don't know, even now, as I speak with you, I don't know quite what to expect. And one of the things that you mentioned in our early conversations was caricature, the idea of caricature. And I had thought that maybe in this, either in this first series or certainly for this first episode, what I should perhaps look at is some kind of caricature. And I even thought maybe I shouldn't write it and maybe I should throw it out to someone else. I haven't explored that just yet. So in all probability, I will write it, but, but we'll see. But caricature is one idea. It could be a short story. It could be just a scene. Or it could have that thread of like what you've just mentioned, you know, a story which will actually carry through generations, like a part one, two, three, perhaps, you know, different scenes in different generations. Who knows, right? One thing is for sure, I have a lot of different outlets for fiction. And what I would like to do hopefully, I'm going to use the word eventually, but not too far away from now, is I'm not the only storyteller or certainly not the greatest storyteller in the world. So what I would love to do is really have these interviews with these people to give other storytellers an opportunity to create fiction. And there are various ways and means we could do that. You know, we could publish them on our website or Certainly what I'm looking at is creating an audio piece out of the fiction that's created from the nonfiction episode. So the episode, just as you'll hear in this one, what follows this interview is actually the fiction piece. I have an app which is called Chapter by Episode, and you can find that on the App Store, both Google Play as well as the Apple Store. That is specifically an app which delivers what we call chat stories or text style stories where the characters, it's, it's a little bit like a screenplay dialogue. When you read the stories, you feel as though you're texting your friend because it's touch, click, touch, click, touch. And through the text messaging, the story is delivered. So that might be an avenue to create some of the fiction that comes out of these interviews. Could be podcasts could be a song, could be all sorts of things. So I'm as interested 
in this as you are, not only because we're doing it and we're starting it, but just to see what comes out of it and from who. You never know. And that is where the magic of creativity lives. And you are literally unleashing your inner creativity through all of these variety of story forms and then opening it and up to be inclusive of other people's contributions, which is why I felt completely comfortable throwing my idea at you because I knew that you are very much all about the inclusive aspect of storytelling and bringing people in and up-leveling with all of these different creative storytelling ways and through technology, through traditional print, through audio, through podcasts. I mean, the possibilities are truly endless. And that's what I adore about you as a creative and also about the True Fiction Project. And if we could leave the listeners of this very beautiful first episode, which is really in itself, I've used the word magical a lot, but I'm going to say it one more time purposefully, is that the magical piece of this is exactly like the way the format of your show is going to be. We've had this interview, but neither of us know what the part two will be, which will be the fiction story that comes as a result of this interview. And that truly is such a magical sensation to think that you'll be interviewing these wonderful guests with all of this impact and then entertaining your own stories or the stories of others to take it to a whole nother creative immersion. So if you could leave the listeners with one just like fun, exciting thing to hold on to, to be excited about. What is one of those things that you would leave for them today? I am going to quote one of my favorite storytellers of all time. I love this guy with a vengeance. And this is Dave Sedaris, who many of us know and love. And, you know, he tickles our funny bone day in and day out, year in and year out. And Dave Sedaris, I have read so many of his books. I have been to his various book talks and presentations and like following him around the world. And the guy is hilarious. He has had, again, like I would say about myself, a very sordid past, you know, in many different places, situations, settings, characters, and the way he describes them and the way he outlines them and fleshes them out in his stories, it makes you sit back and think, oh my gosh, could that really have happened? Could they really have said that? What on earth? And I remember once reading an interview where somebody asked him, is that really the truth or is it just completely embellished, complete fiction? And his response was, you know, that's my version of the truth. And I say this because I've been asked, certainly with a view to some of my fictional stories, which are also about sort of outlandish family dysfunction in a very humorous context, people have asked me, is that true? Did that really happen? Is that your family? Is that your relative? And I always hark back to Dave Sedaris and I say, like he said, that's my version of the truth. So we'll see. Uh, well, I think that is a perfect way do not end because this is only the beginning, but it's a perfect way to segue into the next portion of this podcast, which neither of us know what is to appear. But what we do know is that it is going to be fabulous. 
And I just want to thank you from the absolute bottom of my heart for allowing me to be a part of your creative process today. And one of the things that I always like to say is cheers to what's possible. And in this case, cheers to what's big, big, big possible. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tracy. And now to the premise of the True Fiction Project, which of course is to create fiction out of nonfiction. Three innings. First innings. What do you want to be when you grow up? Gaia asked. She dipped her plastic loop wand deep into the jar of soap suds and then oscillated it across the open expanse to release a ripple of bubbles. Dozens and dozens of them. In moments, the airspace between us was saturated with a swarm of effervescent bubbles, one more whimsical than the next. A person, I responded with definitive confidence. Gaia stood there, in the garden of the building compound, blinking at me through the drifting froth in the hot haze of the Mumbai sunshine. She was attempting to absorb my words. What do you mean by that? she asked. We're all people. On the face of it, I couldn't argue with her perfect logic. But to my four-year-old self, the difference between people and a person was equally logical. The former were run-of-the-mill, the thousands of yous and mes and he's and she's that thronged schools, playgrounds, and railway stations each day. But a person was someone else, someone you could pick out amongst those thousands, instantly because they were unique, and then you couldn't take your eyes off them because they were special. The vision was perfectly clear in my head. I just couldn't articulate it in words. I glanced at the bubbles that Gaia had created, sailing through the wind-blown passage before me. There was something about them that was also different. Like the soap and the water they were made from, they too hailed from mundane origins. A bubble had the ability to transform the mundane into something ephemeral, something that spent its life soaring through the sky. When the sun shone through them, they reflected all seven colors of the rainbow, an enchanted luminescence amidst the routine. In so many ways, so like a person. Not to mention the fact that bubbles were nearly impossible to catch. Gaia and I should know, we had spent many hours of our childhood chasing them. Crawling after bubbles. Walking, reaching, climbing after them. If either one of us ever came close to capturing one in the palm of our hands, it would pop instantly, completely, leaving us with nothing but a mundane residue of soap suds. A bubble couldn't be controlled. Neither could a person. But unlike ordinary people, a person had no need to chase bubbles, 
to be perfectly honest, nor did they have a need to chase anything at all. To the contrary, life's minions bob-bob-bobbed after them, and then risked being popped at the wave of a person's hands. Gaia glanced at me, her eyebrows still knit with suspicion. I wanted to explain, but it was too difficult. So I deflected. What do you want to be when you grow up, I asked. A slow smile worked across her face and into her eyes. I want to be just like my papa. So maybe she did get it after all. Because even then, it was clear to me that Gaia's papa, Bir Vasu, was most definitely a person. Second Innings By the time we had reached our mid-twenties, one thing was perfectly clear. We both wanted to play an active role in our family businesses and eventually snag a place on the board of directors. But in a Punjabi business family, that kind of thinking is akin to going rogue. Factories and boardrooms were no place for women. As for sensitive matters like legal and accounting, these were strictly the domain of male children. But Bir Vasu and G.K. Verma considered themselves to be progressive fathers, willing to give their daughters a chance to prove their mettle. The two friends met at the Willingdon Club one day in late September 1996 to discuss how they might possibly achieve this without upsetting their male progeny. They agreed on one thing. Developing their daughter's sales acumen could indeed be an asset in the long run, but putting them on payroll was absolutely out of the question. Gaia ended up working outside of the family business. She was employed by Procter & Gamble as a salesperson for their Whisper brand of feminine hygiene products. It's excellent training, her father, Beer, was convinced. And for a girl in sales, far more respectable and relevant than pushing my Schaefer kitchen gadgets. My papa, G.K., took a slightly different approach. I'll hire you as a junior sales trainee for Zurich Safety Razors, he told me, but only as long as you work on commission. Gaia and I knew better than to pull down the shade on a window of opportunity, so putting our board aspirations on the back burner, we jumped right into our journey cycles. Masjid Bhandar, Mumbai's oldest wholesale market for fast-moving consumer goods, was not an easy place to navigate, crossing fine lines between small-scale manufacturing, packaging for distribution, and transacting between wholesalers and retailers. This was not a place for the faint of heart. At any given time of day, multitudinous crowds overflowed into the market's narrow alleyways, the traders fighting for passage pushing hand trolleys laden with packaged goods destined for retail customers. And it wasn't designed for women. No, the scouring heat right through the year didn't make it easier to deal with the inevitable lecherous gaze of fellow traders laced with the stench of body odor. Neither did the fact that there was not a single woman's toilet in sight. Why should there be? Aside from a handful of women, 
embroiled in cottage industry manufacturing here and there, the market steamed with hot-headed men, pushing, shoving, negotiating, transacting. It was a soul-strengthening exercise, but I went at it with full force, pushing bulk sales of Zorik shaving razors to wholesale buyers willing to give me an ear. Working the markets had become a matter of pride, but sadly bladder control had become an even greater achievement. I emerged from Juggy and Sons one day, victorious after making a sale of twelve RSUs, twelve ready stock units that would last Juggy's retail customers until my next journey cycle through this area, two weeks later. My eye fell upon a crate of thumbs up, India's signature cola, superior in every dimension to Coca-Cola. My spontaneous urge was to grab a bottle, immediately. But that urge was crushed by a self-disciplined prompt to maintain bladder control by turning the other way. Soft drinks, you see, were a clear reminder of who the wholesale markets were truly designed for. Not women. So I turned my attention towards a three-wheeled rickshaw advancing down the narrow gully towards me. It was filled to the brim with ready stock units of the all-too-familiar Whisper Sanitary Towels. But quite unlike most such vehicles frequenting the market, this particular one hauled not just the cardboard stock boxes, but a salesgirl seated atop them, fighting for balance while holding the back door open for fresh air with a rope tied to her left foot. Don't you even start, Gaia squawked as she eyed me, bursting into hysterics at the ridiculous sight. Those sales guys always get to sit up front next to the driver, but how'd that work for a girl? They told me to follow the delivery guy in a hired taxi, but with 40 outlets to get through in a single day's journey cycle, that would eat up my margins in a heartbeat. All this time, I had been under the mistaken impression that selling men's safety razors was a uniquely gender-driven challenge. But in that moment, I learned it wasn't about the product. Selling even feminine hygiene products meant playing according to the rules of men. Third Innings In the year before we turned 50, Gaia and I brainstormed ideas as to how we would mark our respective milestone birthdays. But when the event came around, celebrating was furthest from our mind. The onset of the coronavirus pandemic cancelled life as we knew it, but more significantly, this was also the year that our patriarchs passed away, both of them within months of each other. Bir Vasu, Gaia's papa, Bir Vasu was ready, perhaps, to say goodbye. He had realized his dreams of taking his company public just a few years before. My father, G.K.'s goals hadn't materialized quite as he wanted, but he did manage to cash in after selling his company to a UK-based private equity player. So where did that put Gaia's dreams of a seat on the board of Schaefer Kitchen Gadgets? or mine on that of Zarek Razors. Both of our careers had reached their pinnacle, 
Gaia was now the CMO of Sequoia India, the firm known to invest in and build companies that would be the legends of industry in the decades to come. I headed sales and marketing for SRI Innovations, the venture capital arm of Silicon Valley's pioneer science and deep tech research institute. As if designed by our fathers, back in the Willingdon Club that late September afternoon, a quarter of a century before, we both even had the same exact job description. In addition to leading the marketing function of our overarching entities, we were tasked with building the brands of their portfolio companies. I hadn't seen Gaia since before the pandemic, but the significance of our loss reunited us in a shared experience of pain, followed by anger, and then bargaining with emotions. She came to see me shortly after my father's wake. Schaefer's board members are very focused on gender representation, Gaia said. Her tone was a mixture of sadness, disbelief, and reconciliation. As CMO of Sequoia India, they figured that I might just qualify to be part of their club. After all, my mind awakened to an old Irish proverb. When your father dies, you lose your umbrella against bad weather. But for us, it was more like the rains had cleared, letting in the sunshine on a cold winter's day. Yes, what was still a very cold winter's day. I revealed to Gaia the news that I had just received from Zarek's CEO. The private equity player that had bought the company had diluted the family share down to a minority stake. We had just one board seat left. By Gaia's expression, I could see she was doing the math. Slowly, yet cautiously, she zeroed in on the all-important question. And will they go for gender diversity? I nodded, laughing at the great irony of the evolution of our ancestral business mindset. They're voting me in as the company's first female director at the upcoming AGM. Gaia chuckled as I signaled a high five to our spirit patriarchs somewhere up there in the sky. In our traditional family businesses, catering to sons, being a daughter had finally paid off. On the face of it, I couldn't argue with her perfect logic. Thank you for listening to The True Fiction Project with Renita Hora. Be sure to subscribe to the newsletter to receive more inspiring stories showing how fiction is born from our everyday experiences. For more information, visit www.truefictionproject.com. Thank you.